This is Andrew Litton, Music Director of New York City Ballet, welcoming you to another podcast of See the Music. Today we are going to be featuring a discussion about Tchaikovsky's ballet, The Nutcracker, which sadly we'd be doing live as I speak, but thanks to this dreadful pandemic, we are relegated to talking about it and showing videos of past performances. In any case, I apologize for the technical quality of this broadcast since I'm recording it myself in my living room on a phone. So if it's not quite up to the standards you're used to with these podcasts, I do apologize. But again, we are trying to make do with what we have. Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky is one of the most famous and beloved composers of all time. So much of his music is performed throughout the world now that it is impossible to imagine a time when he wasn't so revered but many of his works had unsuccessful premieres with both audiences and critics alike. The Nutcracker is a perfect example. Balanchine considered it Tchaikovsky's masterpiece. His 1954 New York City Ballet production is widely credited for putting the ballet on the map, and now virtually every ballet company in the world earns 40% of their revenue from their annual Nutcracker performances. But it was not always so. Following the success of Sleeping Beauty in 1890, the director of the Imperial Theatre in St. Petersburg decided to commission Tchaikovsky to compose a double bill. The first half was to be an opera called Iolanta. The second half was to bring back the dream team Sleeping Beauty choreographer Marius Petipa to create a new ballet called The Nutcracker. Tchaikovsky was much more excited by the opera than the Nutcracker because he was a big fan of the E.T.A. Hoffman short story, The Nutcracker and the Mouse King, and didn't feel it would work as a ballet or that his music would be worthy of such a great story. Petipa gave Tchaikovsky very specific instructions for the music he required, including the various tempos and the number of measures of each selection. Tchaikovsky began work on the ballet in February 1891, and kept at it even with extensive travels, including a famous 25-day trip to New York, where he took part in the grand opening celebrations of one Carnegie Hall. On his way back home, he went through Paris, where he was enchanted with his first encounter with a new instrument called the Celesta, but more on that later. Much of the ballet was written in Rouen, France, and was finished in April 1892. Petipa started staging it in August, but soon fell ill, and most of the choreography was apparently created by his less talented assistant called Lev Ivanov. The ballet premiered following the opera Iolanta on December 18, 1892. It was not a success. In a letter to a friend, Tchaikovsky himself remarked, Apparently the opera gave pleasure, but the ballet not really, and, as a matter of fact, in spite of all the sumptuousness, it did turn out to be rather boring. It is infinitely worse than Sleeping Beauty. Harsh words from the man himself. The critics panned the scenery and costumes, didn't care for the prima ballerina, even calling her corpulent and podgy. They found Tchaikovsky's party scene to be ponderous and the music to the grand pas de deux to be insipid. They also hated the fact that it didn't come until the end of the evening, which following the opera performance was around midnight. Tchaikovsky, who died the following year at the age of 53, never lived to see another performance of Nutcracker. In fact, the ballet wasn't even premiered in Moscow 
until 1919. It is so hard to imagine that the most performed ballet in the world today had such an ignominious beginning. The first complete performance of Nutcracker in America was in San Francisco in 1944. George Balanchine can really be credited for launching the success of Nutcracker with his New York City Ballet production of 1954. For New Yorkers and all visitors to our city ever since, attending a city ballet Nutcracker is virtually required. I remember being dragged to see it several times in the mid-60s when I was a child. Never in my wildest dreams did I ever imagine then that I would grow up and one day conduct it. Balanchine wrote, the Nutcracker at our theater is for children young and old. That is, for children and for adults who are children at heart. Because if an adult is a good person, in his heart, he is still a child. Even though the ballet is written for a very large orchestra, Tchaikovsky brilliantly brings it down to kid size by using a very small part of the orchestra in the overture. All the instruments are written in the treble clef, except two bassoons. The celli and basses don't play, nor do the heavy brass and the only percussion is a single triangle. The Balanchine Nutcracker has two unique attributes that affect the performance of the music. One is the placement of the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy in Act Two. The other is that Balanchine adds a gorgeous violin solo to the first act that he lifted from the always admitted entr'acte from Act Two of Sleeping Beauty. Earlier this week, I invited concertmaster Kurt Nikkinen to my house to socially distance record this solo and a short conversation about it.
Kurt, thank you so much for coming out to the wilds of Westchester. So, oh, my pleasure. It's <laughs> my pleasure. So great to, to be here. Thank you. Well, and I really uh, love that our Nutcracker, the Balanchine Nutcracker, the New York City Ballet Nutcracker, is the one Nutcracker that offers you a chance to play this gorgeous entract from Act Two of Sleeping Beauty, which was Balanchine's genius idea to actually um, use that gorgeous violin solo that's always cut from performances of Sleeping Beauty yes. to give it a life in his Nutcracker. But it must be ironic for you that, you know, with all the swan rakes you've done in Sleeping Beauty, so these huge and fiendishly difficult violin solos, instead of getting a, a nice, easy night at the job, Balanchine makes you work in this well, Nutcracker as well. For a solid month, too. I mean, <laughs> Merry Christmas. Yeah, exactly. You know, but I... All joking aside, it is, I mean, I, I guess it was originally in Sleeping Beauty, and um, we've never done it in Sleeping Beauty. And it's one of the most beautiful solos in the whole pantheon of Tchaikovsky's uh, violin solos. Yeah, I so, agree. I mean, it's a standalone piece that I've played in recital, actually, with piano as an encore. Wow. Or, or actually as a part of the recital, even, as a brace of solos with the two Swan Lake solos and this. And people love it. Yeah. It's a, it's just great music. Yeah, it really and is. difficult and difficult as well. And it serves such a wonderful uh, way to calm us all down before the the storm that follows and the and the uh, the, the mouse king. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is it the only solo with no dancing where we don't have to worry about coordinating? Correct. So yes. that's also a, it's kind of unique in that respect that we don't have, we have the freedom to just interpret exactly. And it's a calm before the storm. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming out, as I said, to uh, record this here with me in my, my living room. Um, this is a crazy period, of course, and it would have been vastly preferable if we could have been listening to you play that with the New York City Ballet Orchestra at the Coke Theater, yes. as would have been the normal practice any other year of our lives. But uh, at least I feel like our wonderful audience has a chance to, yet again to be reminded of uh, this wonderful music, and thank you again for playing it for us today. My pleasure. I'm sometimes asked how it is possible to keep a piece of music fresh when you perform it 48 times in six weeks. Well, first of all, we share the conducting duties, so no one conductor is actually presiding over every show. But most importantly, Tchaikovsky's score is so rich and filled with so many musical rewards that it is virtually self-rejuvenating. Everyone has their favorite moments, but one of mine occurs in Act One. This is actually nothing more than scene change music, but I think it is one of the most beautiful passages ever written.
Every Tchaikovsky ballet has several hit waltzes, and Nutcracker offers up three, with my favorite and greatest of them all being the Waltz of the Flowers. In fact, it may be my favorite waltz of all time, and I say that meaning no disrespect to Johann Strauss and family. It's the perfect length, has gorgeous melodies, and has a heartbreaking middle section that only Tchaikovsky could pull off in what otherwise is a very light-hearted setting. is some of the most passionate and romantic music that Tchaikovsky ever wrote. It's almost as if we can hear the composer thinking, enough kid stuff, here are the adults. But wait a minute, what is that melody? It's nothing more than a G major scale. a genius like Tchaikovsky could turn something as prosaic as a scale into something so beautiful. In fact, he does it twice, even in E minor. Legend has it that a friend wagered with Tchaikovsky that he couldn't write a melody using just a scale. Tchaikovsky allegedly asked whether it mattered if the scale went up or down and was told it did not. Amazing. In the original ballet, the pas de deux is followed by two variations. Balanchine decided that he wanted the dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, or the second variation, to occur back at the beginning of the act, so that we meet the Sugar Plum Fairy and get to see her dance as soon as we arrive in Candyland. Musically, I love this idea. As I mentioned earlier in this talk, just as Tchaikovsky was finishing composing Act One, he got to Paris, where he was introduced to the Celesta. From that moment, he knew he had found the sound of his sugar plum. The Celeste's very first musical entrance in the score corresponds with the sugar plum fairy's first entrance on stage. And as the music winds down, it makes perfect sense to continue on with the dance of the sugar plum fairy. The one casualty of all this is we lose variation one, or the male dancer variation at the end of the act. But frankly, it isn't the greatest music anyway. So, what is a celesta? It's basically a bell piano and looks like a small upright piano. It was invented in 1886 in Paris by Auguste Mustel, whose family specialized in keyboard instruments. Now, bell sounding keyboard instruments have been around for ages. Mozart wrote for one a hundred years earlier in his opera Magic Flute for the character Papageno, but this was in fact a piano glockenspiel.
very cute, but quite harsh and percussive because it has metal mallets hitting tuned metal bars. What the Mustel family was going for was something that retained the bell sound, but in a softer, more soothing timbre. And they came up with it by building a keyboard instrument where the tuned metal bells are being hit by felt hammers, much like one finds in a piano. Here is the Celesta. As compared to the earlier instrument. Tchaikovsky got so excited by this new instrument that he wanted to be the first Russian composer to use it, and he was panicked that his master colorist composer colleagues, Glazunov and Rimsky-Korsakov, would find out about Celesta and use it first. He conspired with his publisher to have one shipped back to Russia in complete secrecy, and it worked. Tchaikovsky first used the Celesta to add a bit of color to his unsuccessful tone poem Voyevoda, from 1891, but it emerged in all of its glory in the Nutcracker one year later. In fact, Tchaikovsky is so excited about this instrument that he writes a cadenza for it, which corresponds to when the ballerina bores back. A cadenza, of course, being a, a solo, so the rest of the orchestra stops. The celesta went on to be used extensively in the 20th century by many composers, including Mahler, Ravel, Gershwin, Richard Strauss, Holst, Bartok, and Shostakovich. Arranger and band leader Nelson Riddle clearly loved the Celesta, so he used it many times in his recordings with Frank Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald. We know it from TV and movies as well. Any of us who grew up with Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood can't forget the sweet intro to Won't You Be My Neighbor? And of course, John Williams gave the Celesta pride of place in Hedwig's theme from Harry Potter. Thanks for joining me, Andrew Litton, for this Nutcracker episode of See the Music. We miss performing so much, and it's very bittersweet to talk about great music and not get to perform it. Hopefully by Nutcracker 2021, things will be back to normal and we can go back to experiencing great ballet performances on stage. In the meantime, I wish all of you a happy and healthy holiday season. Thank you.